It's time to sit down and relax for the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A with your host, Doug. Hey there, Doug here. So last week's sequel was Caddyshack 2, and as promised this week, I am interviewing someone who is involved in the film, and for the first time, we have a non-actor, a man of many talents behind the camera, Tim Lawrence. Tim had some amazing stories and worked on so many classic movies, you won't believe it until you hear the stories. And right from the beginning, I could tell Tim was a great guy, and probably thinking, you know, how can you tell how great of a guy is right from the beginning of a phone call? Well, my three-month-old daughter, Emerson, wanted to get involved with the interview, and some people would have been like, oh, great, this guy has a baby crying, being loud. Nope. Tim made me feel super comfortable and said, is she a big fan? Then he told me how he and some friends were in a bin in his hometown in Jacksonville, and really the beginnings of him going to Hollywood, so I'm going to start right around there so you can... I missed some of the baby crying. I couldn't get that audio out. So sorry for that. But definitely enjoy stories about everything from Thriller to Ghostbusters and to, of course, Caddyshack 2. Stay tuned after to hear the trailer for next week's sequel. Enjoy. Yeah, I went out to California and worked in audio animatronics for a couple of years. And then one day... The Great Saturday. It's about 11 in the morning the phone rang, and it was Rick calling. He said uh, he'd been talking with John Landis about this Michael Jackson video called Thriller with some zombies and a transformation in it, and could I start Monday? Uh, sure, Rick. Happy to. Yeah. And, 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 and that wasn't the end of the good day, because a couple of hours later on the same day, the phone rang again. This time it was Stan Winston. He also wanted me to start work Monday on something called Wishman, and I told him I'd just taken the job with Rick, and he said, oh, that's great. I'm sure you'll do well if you ever have downtime. Give me a call. I'm sure there'll be something to do, and I did wind up working with him on Aliens and Invaders from Mars for a little bit. Oh, you know, wow. And how, yeah, and that's how the Hollywood stuff started. It was back in the – I went out in, like, 1980, and in 1982 I got on a night crew for model work on Jaws 3 and made some molds and sculpted the big cartoon octopus for the amusement park. And then later I got the, uh, I guess it was the following year that Thriller came up and then it just went on from there. I worked Baker's shop in ILM for the 80s. That's awesome. And when you started, it was just you and your band, just your passion for it? Or did you have some kind of like background in doing the mold or you just learned everything on the fly? Uh, when I was here in Jacksonville, I was fascinated by the mold process, and I was always experimenting with plaster, and I got into fiberglass a little bit. My molds weren't great, but I had a lot of hands-on experience. And then when I moved out to California to work in animatronics, I was working in the custom tooling and plastics department where I learned a great deal about how to properly make the molds, and that was very useful to Rick. I remember when we were working on Thriller, and he gave me the first Catman sculpture to mold, and I began to make the mold on it, and I was push, putting the splash coat on, and he walks up behind me and starts digging his finger into my ribs, saying, now, don't screw this up. This is my sculpture. So <laughs> I, I, I made the mold and finished it, and when the mold was finished, he said, you're the only one making molds on my sculptures. So that was a good thing. Wow. Day. That's awesome. And then, what, what, and then you were doing some makeup, and they were – like, were you, was it planned for you to be in the music video? It was not planned, and I should say up front that I'm not a makeup artist. The only makeups I ever did in Florida were a couple of really simple latex slip zombie cheat things. So I was not a makeup artist. I was more a fabricator oh, okay. with foam. And, but, so, so the only makeup I ever did in Hollywood was the Tor Johnson makeup. And that came about because it turned out when we were shooting Thriller, we weren't going to get the dancers until three days before the shoot, so they couldn't have elaborate makeups on them. We had, like, small, medium, and large bags, and we would fit the dancers and use uh, Flexacryl to make some pre-made teeth fit them, and they all had little bags with their stuff in it. And then John Landis said well, to Rick, well, why don't you have your crew be zombies? So <laughs> everybody got to make their own zombie, and I chose... 
to do Tor Johnson. I said I wanted to do Tor Johnson, and Rick said, okay, go for it. So I did that, and John Landis liked it so much, you'll see my zombie and Thriller more than any other zombie except Michael, because he kept saying, where's Tor? And he'd stick me in the background or off to the side. Um, I remember one night late, we were working, and the executive producer, George Folsey, who's also John's editor, came in and said, John, you know there's someone in your video who looks just like Tor Johnson? <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was the most fun I ever had in Hollywood, because it was my first big job in Hollywood. It was the, my first job with Rick. I was the first hire on the job. It was just me and Rick for the first week as I cleaned up the shop and got it stocked. Um, and it, it was a, a compressed experience of the whole movie-making process because in six weeks, we got the job, we did the designs, we made the stuff, we got the shoot, and then two weeks after we finished the shoot, it was in the theaters because John wanted it to qualify for a short film Academy Award. So it was just amazing to go through that couple of months, just that whole thing. And let's see. Oh, yeah. And like uh, two weeks after that wrapped, Mark Wilson, who I'd worked with together on Thriller, had uh, gone on to Boss Film and Marina Del Rey to work on Ghostbusters. And they were getting close to needing to shoot the terror dogs, the big puppets, yeah. on the steps of the Temple of the Gozer. And he said, we need some puppeteers. Can you come down and be a puppeteer? So I went down, auditioned, got a position. So that's myself and Mark Wilson are in the Longhorn Dog, the one she pats on the head when she walks down the stairs. Mark's in the front and I'm in the back. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was cool. That was a, that was a lot of fun. <clears throat> so that was, that was that like my first awesome. year in Hollywood was Thriller and Ghostbusters. <laughs> so that that's, was, that's a pretty that good cool. start. Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing start. If you look at when Thriller has like that, there's different photos if you just type Thriller into Google Images, and there's one, it's like a like a movie poster, and you're right there. Yeah, you're I was right on the cover of the release video for 25 yeah. years until the reissue, and they put a different picture up. But I was, I was on the cover of the video for decades. Yeah, that's a staple for Halloween. Every Halloween party I've ever gone to, <laughs> uh, that song. People are always, always asking me, do you dance? Can you do the Thriller dance? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be like, I don't do it anymore. I uh, I showed Michael how to do it. <laughs> uh, that, that's good. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then right, it seems like, again, I know there's some things that you did, like Ghostbusters isn't even on your IMDb. So I'm sure there's a lot of things I'm going to skip over. But and it seems like right after that, you were on Dumbo Circus, and you were able to – you are the puppet designer for all that. Yeah, I sculpted all the heads for the main characters out of water clay and made, I think, eight anything Muppets with replaceable features. That was that part was very disappointing for me because I thought those turned out extremely well. But I was on, by the time the second show was filming, I was off on to Cocoon at that point. And oh, that was wow. turned over to set people, and they had no idea how to make faces on those puppets. So when I see these shows, I say, what is going on there? Those puppets look terrible because the eyes are on the side, the noses are upside down in the wrong color, and the ears <laughs> are weird and... It's like, oh, man. Well, but that's how it goes. You don't have control over this stuff. You make it, yeah. and someone else takes over. Yeah, and then Cocoon, that was a classic. That was a Greg, I saw okay. some of those photos, yeah. That was a Greg Canham show, but it was originally a Rick Baker show, as was my science project. But at Rick withdrew from those projects for personal reasons and turned Cocoon over to Greg and my science project over to Doug Beswick. And that was the uh, T-Rex the that, that walks into the gym. So I worked on both of those. I worked on Cocoon and I worked on my science project. For Greg, I made a bunch of fiberglass molds of the aliens and injected them with a hot melt vinyl so they could glow from within. Wow. And on my science project, I made a bunch of plaster molds for the dinosaur i remember me and sean McEnroe working day and night for like three days to get them done and was a puppeteer i puppeteered the tail on uh on set for that wow and then i'm sure that i'm gonna skip over something but this is like one of my favorite movies ever but uh like i have a shirt of it i have the poster uh for howard the duck i don't know why at a young age oh, howard the duck. i just love that movie there's i don't know why it's just 
it gets a bad rap. A lot of excellent work went into that, but it disappointed oh, a lot amazing. of people because it just didn't meet their expectations of the comic. Yeah, and I never I, that read was my first violin job. I remember when uh, when that started, I got a call to go up and be a puppeteer, but I was working with Dave Miller on Night of the Creeps, and I didn't want to walk out on him, so I stayed on that till I was done. I was making these uh, five splitting heads that worms had to come out of. And when oh, I got wow. done there, then I went up to Island for Howard the Duck, but they'd already filled the puppet position, so they said, we want you to create Duck World. They had made for Howard ten fully animatronic puppets. They had ten of them. So I was tasked with taking those ten puppets and turning them into ten different characters for the opening Duck World sequence, all of Howard's neighbors. So I made moles off of a duck head that had had the bill removed. So that was my starting plaster life cast, was a plaster cast of Howard's head with the bill having removed, exposing the underskull. And then I sculpted ten uh, character bills onto that and made molds so that I could glue on to uh, these different puppets, these um, different bills, an old duck and... Uh, some ethnic ducks and, and just different, uh, some female ducks. I remember making a shower duck for Debbie Carrington yep. to wear naked in a tub. Um, I remember one day they were considering Robin Williams for The Voice, and he came in wow. on Saturday when I was there, and I had all these sculptures laid out ready for molds, and he just started doing all these different voices for all the different uh, duck characters. So that was funny. Wow, and the day, what, and the day, what character was he going to do the voices for? He was, he was going to do Howard's voice. He was being considered. They considered lots and lots of people. Wow. Um, the, the story I heard for how Chip Zion got the job was there was some Hollywood party that Gloria Katz and Willard Hike were at, and Chip Zion was telling some story with a voice, and Gloria shouts, There's our Howard! And wow. Zion became the voice. Wow. Um, and then I was on second unit with uh, Tom Wright and the Ultralight for Howard puppeteering. There were three of us on radio controls for his face. Um, uh, it wasn't, who was it? Who was on there? It was me, Lisa Sturz, and I am, I, I can see the guy and I know his name, but I've just blanked on it. He was a, uh, a Henson puppeteer and I can't think of his name right now. It's driving me crazy. Anyway, that's that was Howard, and I remember literally, literally the day before we were going to start shooting Duck World, oh, and I, we had made these really nice uh, feathered wigs for all these different characters. I had made these vacuum-formed thin foam caps that you could punch feathers into, and got had this guy, I think his name was Brewer, did all of this fantastic detailed work in making all these different kinds of hairstyles out of feathers, crew cuts and and comb overs and just all kinds of things. <laughs> so Will, I'm, I come in early on that day to get the puppets ready, and Willard's there before me, kind of looking at it, and he says, "Tim, this stuff is great, but I've decided Howard's neighbors need to look just like him, so they didn't use any of my puppets; they just used the wigs." <laughs> so like. Six or seven months of work just didn't get used. Ugh. And that happens all the time. Stuff goes into crates all the time. You do all this work, and for whatever reason, it doesn't get used. More stuff doesn't get used than does get used. That could be rough, but at least you're still able to contribute to it, and you're doing the radio control. Now, how does that work? Is it just knowing, is there a voice doing, like with Chip on set, doing the voice from, like, maybe off-state or off-camera, and you had to move it to manipulate it at the same time, or...? We were connected with head radio so we could hear him, and the... Was it Tim Robbins? I'm trying to remember who the puppeteer was on second unit. He would do the voice. He had a special control to control the bill, to lip-sync the phonetics and the, the script passages, and then... I would be on brows and Lisa would be on eyes. And it's an ensemble performance. It's, it's, it's puppeteering. It's something you rehearse and you know 
how the face needs to move, and you just do it in concert. I mean, it's just something that happens. That's the way we did Harry. He also had a radio-controlled face, and there was a crew of three of us, and we created those facial expressions. And that's how that is done. But it's all real time. That's amazing. It's just an artwork. It's like watching uh, synchronized swimming or ballet. Like everything way, has to be so perfect. You have, or... you, you have to know your crew. You have to work, be able to work together, and you talk. You all get together and talk about it. So this is what yeah, we're going to do, and this is what we're going to play off of. And you lead this one, or I'll lead this one, and that you know the brows will lead this this time. The eyes will lead this this time, or and that's just minor detail. It's usually not even that detail because we we go over the scripts, we run through it, we look at it and say, okay, that's what we're going to do, and off we go. That's great. That's so awesome. And then that, and then your next film again. I'm just going by what we, what I have in front of me, and you just mentioned it was Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, you missed Starman. That's one of my favorites. Starman. What was Car- that? John Carpenter's mm-hmm. Starman. You familiar oh, yeah, with that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah the, the no, star baby. Yeah, the star baby in the beginning, the little glowing baby that starts the trans- Jeff Bridges transformation that Karen Allen walks up on. So, yeah, worked on making the baby, made the molds, made the hot melt skins, and it was a day of shooting. I got to, I got, that was the first time I'd met Dick Smith, too, um, and, and shook hands with his three-fingered hand. Um, but I got to spend all day on set with Karen Allen in her underwear, which was kind of cool. She had a rope <laughs> on her, some of it, but she's a professional. Yeah, I gotta check that movie out, Starman. I uh, it's your, an excellent Jeff movie. Bridges. It's really good. It's really good. Recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, and you have to work with John, uh, Carpenter. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. D- 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 none of that was very close. He would work through an AD, and he'd work through Rick. So there wasn't a lot of close contact with John, but he was there yeah. and knew us and would oh. talk to us. Yeah, I love Karen Allen. Oh, I do too. Yeah, yeah she's Scrooge, great. Animal House. Yeah, she's great. Raiders. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Yeah, and then the next film, well, it's about in the same year, but we'll start with Beetlejuice first, but uh, that was amazing. Some of those photos, those little uh, uh, clay models that you had and the, and the step-by-step of the transformation was unbelievable. That was, a, I, that was a unique experience for me because what got me interested in movies and how they were made is Ray Harryhausen's stop motion I saw. 20 million miles to earth when I was a kid on a black and white set with my dad and I just never forgot it it didn't look like anything else I had ever seen before and really got into the stop motion fan part and making little models but when I got out to when I met Rick Baker the emphasis changed because in his words because he, he kind of went the, the same path that he said he discovered that with makeup he could get much more immediate response instead of having to wait for the film to come back he could bloody yeah. up a neighbor and scare the neighbor's mom <laughs> so, so we went that direction too we went the direction of makeup and i got out to hollywood and was not even really thinking about stop motion but i got into a partnership with a buddy of mine ted ray um, he's working on Game of Thrones now, and he was a big stop-motion guy. And when Beetlejuice was being shopped around town by Alan Monroe to break the effects out a bunch of among a bunch of shops to get it as cheap as possible, Ted got the banister snake and said, "You should talk to Tim about this transformation." And they had been talking to the Kyoto Brothers and Carl Sergius about doing claymation, but they had done that in Pee Wee. And Tim wanted more control over this than you got with that kind of claymation. Because you set the camera up, you stop, and when it's over, it is what it is. Um, yeah. So they wanted more control. And Rick, and I, got, and I got the job. I told them how I would do it. And Rick Heinrich did uh, pencil animation of the scene, showing how it was to proceed and what the angle was going to be. And that's how it started. And I began, we first had to make the decision, how big is all this stuff going to be? And we decided on quarter scale. So the first thing was to sculpt two quarter quarter scale portrait likenesses of uh, Gina Davis and Al Baldwin. So I did those, got those approved, and then made molds on those two things. I also, actually before I did those sculptures, I had made busts uh, without heads, for the Gina character, and I made a bust without a head for the Baldwin character and made molds of those. So I 
sculpted the portraits each on those blank busts and then made a mold of that. So once I had done that, I made clay copies, five clay copies of each, and those were going to be the key frames for the scene, the beginning, the middle, the end, and two in-betweens. So I sculpted the, 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 the very first head is just a portrait. And then the next one, is it starts the transformation. And then there's the middle of the transformation, the almost finished transformation, the finished transformation. So now there are these five sculpts of these extremes for both characters. So now there are ten sculptures. Now make molds on all ten of those. And, and when I pour the clay, I stick a blank plaster bust into the mold so that the heads are all on the same bust with the same base key. So now I have... Ten molds of these extremes, and then those are all poured up. So now I have shelves on one wall where I'm starting to line them up. Um, and so there's five copies of the portrait, and there's five copies of the middle extreme, and there's five copies of the end extreme, and then five copies each of the in-betweens. So now I've got it all blocked in. Now I go, now that I can stand back from them and look at them, I go in there with the clay and start filling in the transformation and get it all roughed in. And then we're shooting tests all through this to check the, the movement, to check how it fits with the block, to check how the, um, the arm animation is going to work. I need to stop for a minute, take a breath, and take a drink of water. Is that all right? Oh, no problem. Take your time. Yeah, give, give me a second here. Yeah. No, that seems amazing. The transformations are so cool and... So the other thing about this is the um, I had the stage set up with a camera that could swivel between the two uh, stages, the, the Gina stage and the Alex stage, so I could shoot one swivel camera and shoot the other one. But the way the blocks were set up was the only part that was replacement were the heads. From the neck down, it's traditional animation. And that was a fiberglass shell with miniature costume parts and ball and socket arm armatures and the miniature costumes were were wonderful and they were made by a terrific talent named uh, Lynette Johnson now Lynette Eklund uh, just really did excellent work miniaturizing those costumes so now for each frame you shoot you shoot the frame you pull the bust out put the next bust in strap it in and then proceed with the animation and we would shoot multiple tests on this and I shot it with black and white Kodak something, ectochrome maybe, because I could get one-hour processing on that. And yeah. so, for 30, so for 36, 40 frames, I could shoot a test of both of them in a day, run that over to Eagle Camera, and wait and get my test back, and then go and look at it and check it out. Um, and so we would proceed in that direction. And once I had gotten all of the heads roughed in pretty well, I hired a guy, I think it, he had just gotten into town, a guy named Eddie Yang, uh, to come in and assist. And he did all of the finish sculpting on the heads and did the teeth and sculpted the hands and did the paint and was a, my best assistant on that. He did some wonderful work. Um, and then as we started shooting it, the first time we shot it, we shot it on what is called shooting on ones, where you shoot one frame for one head, and that just went by too fast. So, yeah. so we shot it on twos, and it it was too slow and and too straight through. So Rick made up some bar sheets where we would uh, change up the frame rates. Uh, you know, this will be a hold frame. Uh, this 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 will be a, a two frame. Um, the next two will be ones, and and we, he would just work this out and look at it until he was satisfied with it. And then we did the final shoot. It got approved and cut in. And that was, gosh, five months, I think, just on that. Yeah, I bet. I, I did a little bit of claymation because I loved, like, growing up on, you know, watching things like seeing the Beetlejuice, but, like, Gumby. And so I would do it on, like, a minimal scale. But, uh, no, that's amazing. And it does take that long to make something that came out that amazing. No, it was a lot of fun. Well, uh, it was a lot of fun in retrospect. <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sure Derek, yeah. 
I had all, I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but I had all of these things on shelves against a wall, kind of pushed against the wall. Yeah, I and saw one, And one morning, I was woken up out of bed by an earthquake. And I thought, oh, oh my God. So I jumped into some jeans and got in the car and ran to the studio to see if I still had a job. And they, they were all on the shelves, but they had been pushed right to the edge. Like one more quarter of an inch, and they would have all been on the floor. Wow. Oh. <laughs> wow. And then next we come to the reason why I reached out to you. And it's funny that, like, when I look up and down, it's not like I would uh, I would have known your name. But then after, you know, looking, because we decided we wanted to do Caddyshack 2, uh, just looking at sequels, because some sequels get such a bad rap, and you always want to find out, you know, you know, deep dive, don't compare it to the first one. That sort of thing is what we're doing. So once I clicked on your name, I'm like, oh, I hope this guy reaches back to me. Just looking at all the movies that you worked on that I loved and grew up on. But uh, so Caddyshack 2, you were the key puppeteer. No, Steve Sleep was the key puppeteer. Oh, okay. He was the body and head, and I was the arms. You were the arms, okay. Yeah. A lot of, most of that was shot on sets at ILM of the tunnels built by the model shop there. Uh, headed by a guy named Lauren Peterson, um, he was he was really into organic. So ev- everything was biodegradable. It was special glue. It was special dirt. It was really? everything. Yeah. And there's so much stuff we shot in those tunnels that didn't make it into the movie. I've got, geez, four videotapes of camera taps of all of our rehearsals and looking at the stuff. I haven't looked at it in years though. Wow. Do you do you keep a lot of that stuff? Do you keep any of like... I used to. I got to tell you, when I moved back here from the West Coast because my parents were sick, I had four storage units packed with stuff. A lot of it, uh, Hollywood mementos, just things I had saved from the movies I'd worked on and things people had given me. And then the times got rough, and I down to one storage unit now. But I, I don't think I kept anything, really, from... Uh, Hollywood, I think I have one cap from Apocalypto, and that's it. <laughs> oh, okay. But you have all those, those, those photos are amazing. So sometimes photos are just as good as having that object. I'm fortunate, <laughs> Doug, that I, that I got out there at the beginning of the 80s, the very beginning of the great rubber monster rush, and I got yeah. connected with Rick Baker from the very beginning and just was fortunate to have worked on some really cool stuff all through the 80s and also fortunate that there were some good pictures of it. So Yeah. No, definitely. Now, with Caddyshack 2, did you, when you get approached with a job, um, did you, were you familiar? Did you, I'm sure you watched the first one, right? Oh, yeah. I was a big fan of the first movie. That's awesome. And now, when you were, now, when you filmed all that stuff, do you know, do they give you the script, and do you know who was going to be in the movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're involved pretty much from the beginning to familiarize okay. ourselves with the script and have come up with ideas for gags and for bits and what would be a good or particularly funny way to do this and those kinds of things. How are we going to get the shot of him crawling into the baseboard? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the head off and put a hand in from the neck and do it that way, you know, and yeah. figure all that stuff out there on set. That's, that's the thing about a lot of these is that the thought process, how am I going to say this? It's not always thought out in advance, so you sh- you're often on set making stuff up. I mean, yeah. not like Little Shop of Horrors, that, that wonderful Oz movie that Lyle Conway built the plant for. The 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 Feed Me song, they, they spent three months shooting that, and they spent three months before that doing nothing except rehearsing every day. That And when you wow. have that kind of preparation and that kind of support, you just cannot beat the resulting performance. It's always going to be much more excellent than making something up. Yeah, and now with Ka- with Caddyshack too, I, the the puppet I would say the Gopher ha- took on his own character in the second one. He was more animated. Uh, I don't know. He was funnier, and he was talking more than he did in the first one. And I just thought it was really cool to have him, you know, really come to life. He was like a main character in the movie. I haven't seen it in so long. I have to say. Okay. Oh no, it's okay. I just watched it not too long ago. And the only thing is, is when you, it's funny, when you look at the background on some of these sequels that we're doing, and they talk about, you know, that was going to be Rodney in that role. And then uh-huh. there was a disagreement that he had, so then they brought in Jackie Mason. But 
it was just hard to replace. Like, if you watch that movie and think of Rodney saying all those lines and being in that character, then it... Well, when you think of Caddyshack, you think of Rodney Dangerfield and the Gopher, and maybe... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny with that first one, Rodney was just supposed to be have a few lines, but when he came on to set, they just... How Ramis loved him, and they just wrote him in more and more, and... uh yeah, that's such an amazing film, and that's great well, that you're able to I'll be part the, of it. In the, in the first movie, the the big uh, conflict is between Bill Murray and the Gopher. In the second one, the conflict's between Dan Aykroyd and the Gopher. Which one did you yep. like better? Bill Murray. Yeah, I got to go there too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That, if you, that, if scene, you do remember, that scene we shot yeah. where uh, the gopher is digging into the golf bag, that was on set. I mean, that's lit to look like it's outside, but that, that's on set, and that's one of my favorite shots. I think that's particularly funny of him digging into the bag. No, that was great. No, Dan Aykroyd, he's a great actor, and I know you oh, had yeah. the opportunity to work with him, like, I the think next four year. times. Four I times? worked with him on Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, Dragnet, and Caddyshack 2. Oh, wow. I, I was on the Dave Miller's crew with the big snake in the sewer. Oh, okay. Don't have any yeah. pictures from that yet, though. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. No, but yeah, so not too long after that, uh, the next year, Ghostbusters 2. And you were actually in it too, which is really neat. So you were able to, did you build that? That was another one of those days where the phone rings and my life changed. The phone rings and it's, hey, Tim, this is Dennis Murin. Okay, I had met Dennis Murin and he had, was around on Howard the Duck and Caddyshack too, but I didn't think he even really knew me. But here yeah. he is on the phone asking me if I'd be interested in coming up to work with him and run the creature shop on Ghostbusters too, uh, and asked if he could have a script sent over. And after I looked at the script to call him back, and I said, sure. You know, we had a nice, nice conversation. I hung up. Five minutes later, my doorbell rings. He already had it on its way when he was talking to me. They have, uh, they used to have a secondary office in Universal City called the Ed Company on Lancashire, and he just had a bike couriered over while I was on the phone with him. <laughs> now, That's the great. First, the August 88, I think, version, and Slimer wasn't even in it. Slimer was not in the script at that time. The Scolari brothers were in it, and that scene of the Scolari brothers is probably the only thing in the script I saw that never changed. It stayed the same all the way through, and those were the first things designed, the first things approved, and the first things built were the Scolari brothers. Um, and those uh, that's another very good example of how if you – Plan more in advance and know more what you want. You, you get a better effect for a better price because the way it was originally written, they were these huge characters stomping around the courtroom with their feet breaking through the floor and getting ground contact and electrical bolts, and they were supposed to be lip-syncing Italian epithets. So we designed them as suits and built them as big suits. And, so, and I said, I'm going to play Nunzio, and there was no problem with that. Um, but, but as we went through production, they were more and more in the air, they were more and more on wires, and they were more and more uh, covered with roto animation effects and more and more distorted with mylar mirror gags. And if we had known that from the beginning, they could have been little rod puppets done in a water tank and have been really cool. But we were stuck <laughs> with the suits at that point, and that's just how it had to be. Some of these photos that are so cool that you have on here, uh, like with the Statue of Liberty, when she's getting ready to smash in the museum, and that photo of you is so cool. Statue of Liberty, when uh, maybe Michael Gross was always saying to me under his breath, please make the statue work, please make the statue work. <laughs> um, but we had to have a casting session for someone to play the statue, so I had an open call, very narrowly described, tall, thin, you know, this and that. So we had like 30 people come in. Uh, lots of women, 
and we would go through. I had them, you know, okay, what I want you to do is start on this smart, walk very slowly, and hold up your right hand. And after about the fifth one, people started laughing because they had figured out what was going on. They, this uh-huh. is the Statue of Liberty. You know, they didn't know anything about the movie or that there was a statue, but it was pretty obvious what we were going for. And I was getting a lot of pressure from some production to hire this one particular girl. Um, but I was focusing on a guy that I thought had a particular look to his walk, a particularly quality to his grab. This guy's name was Jim Fye. And I, I really wanted that guy. So I put him through special um, choreography. You know, hit this mark, do that. Can you hear me when your head's covered with a helmet? You know, because you've got to be able to hear and see. So we have to, whenever anyone's wearing a suit, you, you never are able to see your feet. It's like walking downstairs with your eyes closed. It's, it's a skill. You have to take your marks off of uh, C-stands or tape marks on a board or something like that. So we went through that, and it, and it worked out, so I cast Jim. It was always my decision who was going to be a ghost. Those were my decisions. So Jim was cast wow. in the statue. And when we were... Uh, we had not shot the Scolaris yet or finished building them, and we still didn't know who Tony was going to be. Uh, my original idea was, because I wanted him to be, Tony to be impossibly tall and skinny such that it couldn't be a guy in a suit, I had hired Mark Wilson to come up and build a prototype of a, 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 a Japanese-style puppet built off his body. And we shot tests with that that, were, that they liked, but they said the amount of roto, to make this work is just not going to fit our schedule. So it had to be a guy in a suit for that reason. And then I auditioned again. And uh, Alan Troutman, uh, I liked a lot for that. But then Ned Gorman, uh, associate producer for ILM, uh, line producer, came to me and said, you know, we've already got Jim Fye on contract. And And I went, ding, ding, ding. So, yeah, Jim uh-huh. became Tony Scolari uh, right then. And, because again, because Jim was on contract, he also got to be the ghost jogger. So he played three ghosts in that movie. Wow. And then a really cool thing that you put on uh, one of those photos was that when they were doing the submission uh, for the Academy, they included you on there and, and all of your names, which is yeah, really that neat. Yeah, Den- Dennis Murin did that. Um, Nine-time Academy Awarder Dennis Muir. We got along really well. And when it was over, he insisted that my name be included, and they had to remove the art director's name, Harley Jessup. But Harley Jessup's name was with Dennis's on the Abyss, which was always going to be the winner. So it wasn't a big deal. But I yeah. got to be on those big full-page ads for your consideration. There was my name with Dennis Muir. And so I got my small recognition at Academy level, and that's plenty for me. Yeah. And that's amazing if you think about it, just, you know, what, eight years prior yeah. to when you moved yeah. out there? I was 29 when Rick hired me, and I was 32 or 33 when I got the Ghostbuster gig. It's amazing. And then Slimer, and then from, of course. Yeah, Slimer was amazing looking. The photos of you in front of Slimer look so awesome. That That's a big story the whole Slimer thing because it was as I said it wasn't in the original yeah. uh, script at all and then he then it was in the script but with a small part so again it was I, I wanted to make it I need, I need to start even before that because by this time there were essentially three Slimers there was the monster from the first movie there was yeah. a Saturday morning cartoon and then there was Tom Enrique's storyboard Slimer, which had a unique character that everybody loved. And I was tasked with combining all three of those into a wow. single thing that production could approve. So I sculpted a maquette and, and, and pushed it around and said, okay, there's this little bit of cartoon in the face, and we still got the monster and the teeth and the claws, and we got to, and, and, and we've got this wonderful fluid animatronic face so we can get some of this Tom Enriquez stuff in and got it approved and we started to build it and I cast a guy I'd worked with before who does a lot of stunt costume work named Bobby Porter and he had recently worked with Tony Gardner on Mom and Pop Save the World I think oh, and Mom Tony and Dad, had a, yeah. yeah and Tony had a 
a body cast of Bobby, so we borrowed that to build the fabricate the suit on. Um, and we built the suit. We built the costume. He was done. He was essentially finished and ready to go. And then Black Tuesday rolled around. That was the day we oh, were told yeah. that Slimer was now out of the script and that we should let Bobby go. And the story I got one day in dailies down in Los Angeles when they are checking out the first unit dailies, they would often at the end run ILM's silent special effects dailies. And there was a lot of Slimer stuff. And after viewing some of that in the dark, Mike says you could hear Bill Murray's voice. It's called Ghostbusters, not Slimer. And Slimer started, <laughs> Slimer started getting cut out of the movie, and then he was just gone. So I said, please be real sure Slimer's out of the script, because if you let Bobby go and he takes another movie and you decide Slimer's back in, we're almost starting over. So they said, nope, Bobby's out, cut him. So two weeks later, new script. Slimer's not only back in, but has an expanded role in this new relationship with Tully. So we've got the suit, but nobody to wear it. Um, so I go up with Ned again and say we need an open call. Need to find someone rough height and weight and see how much of this we can fit on them. And Ned said, you know, I work with this girl on Willow. Her name's Robin. I said, bring her in. So brought her in. She she looked good for the role. She was real good height and real trim weight. And I said, okay, we need to do some uh, we need to do some mirror work and some choreography. So we went into uh, a corner of the stage. Was it a corner of the stage? I think we went into a room, a dressing room with some mirrors, and and did the the mark choreography. Okay, do not look at your feet. Just look at this mark and do this turn. Do this. Yeah, and backwards. Because you have, when you're on one of those raised stages, you have to trust everybody around you that you're not going to walk off the edge. Oh, yeah. So, and she did great, as, as you would expect a dancer to do. So I said, okay, we got to go to the creature shop now and see how much of this stuff fits you. So <laughs> we took her over there, and Bobby's arms did fit her except for the fingers. So we had to redo the extensions, and Mark Siegel did that. The body pod fit. At some point, I need to talk about Kamala Henneman, who I brought up to supervise the costumes because she's just an, an amazing fabricator. Um, so, so and, and then we had to make a head cast right then because the Slimer head, the animatronic, and then everything in there had to be refit. And that was a bit of a trick. And that took a little while. But we got it done, you know, in time for shooting and we shot, and it is what it is. We shot so much more than got used. Because, again, Bill was getting a little itchy about how much Slimer there was, so we started getting cut out again. And by the time I left for Gremlins, there were only three shots left in the movie. And, and if we had shot, if production had gone on much longer, Slimer would have been completely removed again. And, 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 here, and here's another thing about it. Um, when we were coming up, not the end of the production, but we, we were well into production. Uh, Michael Gross and Ivan came to us and said, is there, I mean, everybody's working weekends and late nights already. And they come up and say, is there any way we could up the schedule so we could open Ghostbusters one week ahead of Batman? And of course, without any consultation, they said, sure, no problem. So everybody's working even harder now just to get this stuff cranked out. And they did have an excellent opening weekend that was completely erased by Batman the next week. Yeah. So yeah I guess they did the right thing for their production. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's great, Slimer, if you think about it, over the last, you know, since, since you got and really, really kind of pushed for it, this, this is like the character you see in any ads, like even the Super Bowl. There was a, a Walmart ad, and it's not like you're going to have a Ghostbuster. It was Slimer driving the Ghostbuster mobile. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. Whenever we, we're talking about Slimer, we've really got to give the the lion's share credit Steve Johnson because he invented yeah. that guy, you know, in the first one, and they they were using real comparatively primitive technologies and got some excellent results. And Mark yeah. Wilson, of yeah. course, is funny as hell in that. <laughs> Yeah, and then you said, uh, moving on to the next one, 
uh, Gremlins 2. You went right over there. And, and uh, Actually, Harry three... was before Gremlins. Oh, it was? Okay. Because I was on Ghostbusters when the phone rang in the shop, and it was Rick wondering when I'd be available to come down for Harry. Oh, okay. Until we went down and did that. Is that right? No, 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 no. That's wrong. That's wrong. Harry was after I, I got the call when I was on Howard to come down for Harry. When I was, you're right. Yeah. When I was on Ghostbusters, I got the call to go down to Gremlins. You're right. You had it right. I'm wrong. You know my career better than me. <laughs> no, I just have it in front of me. Your memory is a lot better than mine is. <laughs> but uh, no, and then Gremlins 2 you were able to work on, and you did, you were in charge of everything again on that? No, film? no, no, no. There were, uh, this was wonderful and remarkable to me. This was the first and only time myself and Steve Sleep and Mark Tyler, my buddies from Jacksonville, all got to work together on the same show. No way. That's awesome. Yeah, that was, the, yeah, that was, that was really fun. And um, I, th- no one was the supervising puppeteer. There were three supervising puppeteers, and th- that was us. That, that's why at the end of the movie when the credits roll and, it, and they did the technical crew, it's all these names that are in alphabetical order except for Steve Sleep, Mark Tyler, and Tim Lawrence that are right at the top of the center crawl. They, they specially put us out of alphabetical order right there at the top. That's so awesome, especially being able to, you know, after, you know, nine, ten years in, in Hollywood, connect again on a film and all work together. Yeah, it, that was, it was great. I was uh, Mohawk and the Brain Gremlin. I was, I was the supervising puppeteer and the lead puppeteer for Mohawk and the Brain Gremlin. Steve was uh, George. Mark was Lenny. Uh, Tom Hester was Daffy. Who's left? I'm missing somebody. Is that right? Is it? It's Mo. It's like name. Can you name all seven dwarves? Yeah. Not today. <laughs> oh, but that's great. That's so cool. You're able to work all together again. And then it's funny. The next uh, there might have been something in between, but the next one that I see is uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three. Yeah, not another big disappointment. I, I got to work with people I love on that. Uh, Lisa Sturz and James Murway. But here's the yeah. thing about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. We were doing Splinter. I was the hands, Lisa was body and head, and James was the animatronic face. This was the first of those movies. They did not build the sets up off the ground so you could get underneath them. They thought that was too expensive. And Eric Allard, a wonderful guy and builds great stuff, said we can build it on the end of a pole and you can push it into the set. So I thought that really limited what it could do. But here's yeah. the thing. We were up there uh, for Astoria for three weeks for this. And I guess the first week, we didn't shoot. We just rehearsed. And then the day came and the call came. We're ready to shoot the first scene. Oh, okay. So it's inside the subway car where he's got that big overstuffed chair. And we had to push him in through the back of the set into the chair and get him positioned before we could do anything. And it's kind of tight and it's kind of squeezy and tricky. So we're back there, and we're pushing them in, and we're adjusting them, and we're, and we're all ready, and we've got our monitor set up, and, and, and we're ready to go. So we say, okay, we're ready, and we hear, cut, print. They had filmed it while we were putting them in place, and no one had noticed, and they just kept it, and I think it's in the movie. Wow. <laughs> putting them into place without even performing them. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, it is insane. Also, it was very, very yeah. disappointing. Yeah, and you know what's funny? So uh, that's another movie that we're going to do. And I actually talked to Matt Hill. He was the suit actor for Raphael. Ah. He said he remembered you. He said hi. Hi. <laughs> I was understudy for, uh, I'm missing his name. He played the dragon and Ariel and the bear in the big blue house. I can't remember his name, but I was understudy for that. So I got to rehearse and do some background stuff for his character. Oh, okay. Yeah. The full controls. Oh, for Raphael? That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. He said, his funny thing, he said that his, uh, the the guy that controlled him uh, was the puppeteer for uh, Snuffleupagus. So if that's the same guy. Uh, Snuffleupagus, Martin Robinson. Yeah, that's what he told me. Martin Robinson was the original Snuffleupagus. I don't know 
who was doing it at that time. Might have still been him. Yeah. But now, no, t- uh, yeah, he was like, oh, Tim. He was, I remember him. He was, I don't know if he remember me or not, but, uh, no, that's really neat. And then after that, because I don't want to take up too much time, you just, really, thank you so much. These stories are amazing. Sure. Uh, and then you had the opportunity, uh, you were, you did the sculpting on Shrek. I was part of that team. Okay, Shrek's another long story. Shrek actually started in my garage. Um, I had been working with a group called Propellerhead, four guys, Lawrence Soman, Andy Weisler, Rob Letterman, and another guy you might have heard of, J.J. Abrams. Yeah. And they were developing new systems of animating characters. And they their agent was uh, CAA, Michael Ovitz. And we had gotten a deal with HBO to shoot a pilot, not a pilot, but a test for a late-night adult program called American Voyeur, and we designed this big, fat character with a motion control, motion capture suit that I wore. It, uh, so we used the motion capture to capture the body movement, traditional animation for peripherals like fingers, tongue, and eyes, and then replacement faces for all the expression. We digitized those expressions and then worked those into the animation. And the, how I got involved was because my friend Lauren liked what I had done for Beetlejuice, and he wanted to do something similar for this, so he brought me in on that. Well, after we finished the test for HBO, HBO went into turnaround. Our project got a red light and it had been killed. But the agent, CAA, knew that Jeffrey Katzenberg had just acquired the rights to this children's book, Shrek, and was looking for a new process. So he, he sent our tape over Jeffrey loved it, and we were immediately brought on to start developing Shrek and began in my garage because that's all there was to work in. Wow. And as we got along, we brought more people in, like Tom Hester and Mike Smithson and Charles Rivera and Dennis Gordon, and just everybody worked on everything. Um, And at some point, I had to leave. I can't remember why, but I had to leave, and then Tom became the supervising sculptor and he was the supervising sculptor for the rest of that show and all the ones that followed and the Shrek that you see in the movie is Tom's design Tom designed Shrek and the donkey Tom designed every one of those when it comes down to it. Fiona Shrek wow the donkey that, that was all him we all helped because when these things start the first thing you come up with is never the thing you use and we must have gone yeah. through we must have gone through because we worked on that for years you know, I, I I started working on the HBO project in '96, and when did Shrek come out? 2000. So yeah, there were first, years, years yeah. of development on that. So you know, literally a couple of hundred stabs at the the Shrek design, and, and until Tom was able to get it all together into a form that became what you see in the movie. Yeah, and then at one point it must have been before he passed away, but Chris Farley was did like a test. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the very character. first sculpture that Lauren did was Shrek with the, with with Chris Farley's features, and I wish I could find that, but I'm not sure where that wow. is. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so you were able to work on those, and then because they have you here as Shrek Two sculptor and Shrek the Third mold maker and sculptor. Yeah, uh, Tom, uh, we mo- we moved operations into Tom's personal studio, and that's where all the rest of it was done. That picture you have of us as a group is from Tom's studio. Oh, wow. Nice. And then recently, uh, the house of the clock in the swalls. No, I've had... The what? No, I've had nothing to do with that. Oh, really? Yeah, they have you on here for that. The last thing I worked on was Apocalypto in 2006. I was in Veracruz oh, okay. for about three weeks in the jungles west of Veracruz, in and out of Mayan temples with Mel Gibson performing painting howler monkey puppets for the Zenote cavern sequence. Wow. How was that, that experience, being down there? The best thing for me was getting to watch Mel Gibson work. That's the hardest working director I've ever worked with. That guy's got oh, yeah. energy. He knows exactly what he wants, and he knows how to get it across. It was just amazing. They, the set we were using, cause since it was some farm in a jungle, was a bunch of metal ocean-going containers that had been stacked into a big cube with a tra- jungle translite on the top of it, and they, they used all of those metal, well, the, the two bottom metal containers as workshops, you know, and inside was this 
cavern of Zenote. Wow. In the middle of a jungle. And out beyond that, they had built this huge miniature set of the city, you know, which they would string green screens around and shoot the sun moving over it and the shadows moving and all that. That's so amazing that you're able to work with them. And yeah, I got that. My, my, that. My, my, my buddy Ted Ray got me onto that. He's, uh, he's really taken all of the specialist effects stuff much more seriously than I have and has just really climbed. He's, he's way, he got an Emmy last year for Game of Thrones and he's, I think that's oh, what wow. he's doing now. And he did Passion of Christ for Mel, you know, and, uh, and Apocalypto. He did the effects for Apocalypto. And the effects on Apocalypto are so good you, you don't even know you're looking at an effect. I mean, yeah. It's seamless all the way through. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Just a couple more questions. Sure. What would you What would you say you were doing? You would be doing right now if you never got into this. Anything you like wanted to be as a kid, career wise? Oh my goodness. Well, of course, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I loved animals. Oh. Um, and that and that actually is has led to what I am doing now. I have oh, a not for profit. Yeah, I have a not for profit that I call Conservation Arts where I work with living zoo animals like gorillas, lions, tigers, bonobos, wolves. I'm in conversation with uh, an animal preserve in Pantanal, Brazil, to go down later this year to work with the giant armadillos. And uh, I go into the hospitals with them when they're unconscious for x-rays or blood work, and I use my kit to make molds off of their paws. So I make bronze art with Braille and English descriptions so people can see the animals with their hands. Because you and I can wow. see these animals, but a lot of people can't. And this yeah. is a way to extend the animal experience and create this new interaction all through the park between the guests and the animals. And uh, the site is conservationarts.net, and you can see uh, see what I'm up to. Yeah, and I'll make sure to put that link uh, in the description of the episode so people can check that out. It's really amazing that you're doing that. Right, well, there's nothing like putting your head on the chest of a 500-pound gorilla and listening to its heart skip, you know, or a lion and hearing its murmur. It's really something. And often That's their crazy. eyes are open, and I'll just get right in their face and just stare into their eyes. How long have you been doing that? Uh, about 12 years. I got into wow. it years ago with, with friends of mine at the Jacksonville Zoo. I know a lot of people at the zoo. It's my zoo. And yeah. Just, that was an idea one day. We got a jaguar coming in. You want to cast a paw? Sure did that and just kept the relationship up and it has now turned into this project, this program. Well, that's amazing, Tim. And thanks again for your time. I'll make sure to include that link so people can check that out, especially with the amazing work that you're doing, that you're giving people an opportunity to feel and be able to see an animal uh, without being able to see them. I did an event last week called the North Florida Braille Challenge where I took some of my sample exhibits down, and it was it was just really something to see these blind kids getting their hands on the crocodile paws and the wolf paws and the gorilla feet and reading the little Braille tiles that come with them. It's it just, just something. Yeah. No, that's, that's so amazing that you took something that you learned and you were able to use for years to help you know, That's my only with techniques. I'm not smearing alginate on gorillas. Yeah. <laughs> cool, Tim. Thanks again for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, send me a link to where I can hear and listen to the cast. Definitely. Thanks again, Bye, man. and uh, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Next time. Those are some wild stories that I was not expecting going into it. I put the link to Tim's charity in the episode notes, uh, but here it is. It's conservationarts.net. Now it's time for the trailer for next week's movie. (laughs) An evil crime lord is getting inside information. We've suspected that there was a leak in this precinct. It could be anyone. Making us look like a bunch of fools. Now, Matt... Hightower. <laughs> Hooks. You can pick it up at the police impound yard. Boy! Callahan. <laughs> Tackleberry. You'll take the bus and like it now, mister. Jones. <laughs> Target human. Backler. No. Ah! Hey! 
Christmas. Make my Christmas. Or Commandant Lazard. I know we shall soon triumph over our enemies. They love their work. shows when it comes to in-flight service and on-the-job safety. I have just the men for the job. And the biggest wheels around. That was very exciting, wasn't it? Police Academy 6, City Under Siege. This was a fun one to do, and we had so many choices uh, for sure, because Police Academy is amazing, but we went with the sixth installment. Check it out if you haven't seen it, and don't forget to subscribe to us, review, rate, and share our podcast, and hey, follow us on Twitter at Sequels Only. Give us some sequels to do. You send me some? Tweet some at me? Hey, I'll reach out to all the actors in the movie to make sure that we can find somebody that we can chat with. Good night.